on the record on news talk Yes, this is News Talk. Kieran Cudahy with you until one o'clock for On The Record. 53106 is the text number, as always. That will cost you 30 cent. Or you can get me on Twitter, at Kieran Cudahy. With me in studio, a self-styled panel of experts. Uh, Aidan Regan, Professor at the UCD School of Politics and International Relations, Director of the Dublin European Institute. Sheila Riley, Head of Digital with Iconic News, the regional newspaper group, former editor as well of the Longford Leader, and Larry Donnelly, Law Lecturer in NUI Galway. You're all very welcome to the programme. Thank Good you. morning. Good morning. Um, I'll just run through the stories making the front pages before we get into anything else. Uh, the Sunday Independent leads with Leo's secret New Deal list. Fianna Fáil fury at Varadkar's manipulation, they say, Taoiseach. Ireland forced to accept partition 100 years ago. That comment from the Taoiseach. It's from a piece he's written inside the paper. There's also a piece on the front page uh, from Donald O'Shea, well, not written by Neve Horne, but comments from Donald O'Shea about... Uh, unweighable 50 stone patients that's the first time he's had to deal with them in his line of work the Sunday Times Irish personnel Irish personal injury payouts dwarf UK totals should I say uh, this is a report from the Personal Injuries Commission led by Nicholas Kearns uh, coverage inside a lot of the papers as well about various aspects of that report they also have on the front page Fine Gael opens up 13 point Whole lead, a huge lead, the biggest lead over Fianna Fall since 2012. We'll talk about that in a few minutes' time in more detail. Photo of Tiger Woods on the front page, Ping and Carnoustie. Joe Malloy is going to be chatting to us after 12 about what we can expect to happen in Scotland today at the British Open. The Irish Mail on Sunday leads with Irish Red Cross and Turmoil Board member quits over how finances are managed, three senior jobs da- being made redundant, donations down by 1.2 million since 2016. And finally, the Sunday Business Post leads with exclusive cash for visa scheme faces access report reveals litany of failures investigation finds only 1100 jobs being sustained by the scheme the vast majority of the applicants to date have come from china of course the scheme was targeted mostly at china so it's not surprising that that's where most of the applicants have come from front page story as well on the sunday business post government intervenes in controversy over liam miller tribute match brendan griffin minister for sport has actively engaged with the GAA over the impasse. And actually, I'm going to start there because I was chatting to various people at home yesterday and everyone mentioned the Lee Miller game uh, at different times and what should happen. And there seemed to be consensus about actually what should happen. Uh, I just put it out. Has anyone has anyone here of an, an opinion that might contradict that consensus? No, I mean, this is an absolute PR disaster for the GAA. I don't know how they actually managed to bring themselves down this this road, to be quite frank. They should have uh, spotted the jungle drums a lot earlier on this, you know, um, like sticking to the rule, you know, sticking to the rule book mantra um, on it is, is just pure foolishness, um, particularly in the light of kind of the uproar in relation to it, but also just in, in relation to what the, the story is here. They're trying to hold a fundraising match uh, for the family of the late Liam Miller, you know, a revered uh, football star, died earlier this year from cancer at the age of 36. It's such a tragic story. And to find themselves out of, out of touch in relation to this is absolutely ridiculous. I, I can't understand how people sat around a table in Crow Park and decided that this is going to work out for us if we just stick to the idea that the rule book says you can't hold the match in Park Kiev because that's our rules and that's it. And Larry Aiden. Well, for, for me, I mean... Anyone going to stand up for the rule book here? No, not for the <laughs> rule book, no. I think, you know, the GAA 
I mean, look, it's a very successful professional organisation, but it always has been associated with a certain latent conservatism in Irish society. And I think a lot of people kind of had forgot about that and thought over the past 10 years, you know, they had moved on a bit. I mean, even personally, I remember as, a, as, a, as an early teenager playing uh, for a local GA team in Tala and I turned up one day and the manager said to me, I'm not playing because I was wearing a soccer haircut. Um, so I was quite shocked. You still by have that. it. <laughs> so I walked away, never went back. And to be honest, I disengaged from GAA then up until I was in my 20s and I gradually got back into it again because I thought they'd open themselves up and, and so on. So things like this are just a small reminder that there is an undercurrent of conservatism in that organisation, which I think is just time to get rid of, get it out, open yourself up. You know, you're a brilliant organisation. The sport is fantastic. Why would you bother with such nonsense things like this? Larry? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with, with, with anything that Aiden or uh, Sheila said, and I speak, uh, I suppose, as a GA fanatic, uh, even though my American accent might belie it a little bit. Uh, I'm a GA. I was in Croke Park last week. I'll be in Croke Park again next week to watch Galway. Uh, I have no time for soccer or for rugby, uh, so I come from that perspective, but at the same time, uh, I think the GA has made a d- disastrous decision here, and they have to go back on it. They absolutely have to go back on it, not just for political reasons, because as Sheila says, it's a PR disaster, uh, but also because it's the right thing to do. This yeah. is somebody who died young. This is to attribute to his family. This is somebody indeed who himself was active in the GAA. They mm. have to do better than this. Yeah, there, there was a lot of criticism. Like social media turns into a cesspit very quickly these days. And there was a huge amount of criticism about, like, you know, if, if the GAA was going to make money out of it, they'd have opened it up. And I think some of that was unfair. I think it was just a case of them just they stuck to their rules and they, they as you said they ignored the, dr- the jungle drums they, did, they didn't hear them uh, when it was quite obvious uh, no, what and, the sentiment was and that was. needs to be a bit of a wake up call for them to be honest Karen. you know out of this they, they do need to come away from this and, and we still don't know how by the way this is going to be resolved but let us assume that they are going to go down the road of opening Park O'Keefe to this match I think um, they will I think, yeah, the, I think the, they, yeah, they will the certainly will. that's no the, yeah. Yeah, that's what you'd be reading between the lines here uh, but they need to come away from this with some serious lessons learned out of it without a doubt it's an organisation that's rooted within every parish in the country um, They, it's, it's as Aidan said you know second to none really a fantastic organisation they should have and they should be well in tune with what people are thinking not get themselves caught up in something like this uh, someone has texted in to say why not call it a football match and let the soccer players catch it and kick at the ball from time to time and, <laughs> <laughs> and just turn a blind eye to the whole thing someone else has texted in already to say Kieran, I thought you know your sport but it's the Open Championship not the British Open says John who says he's in Watford I didn't realise there was wet spritz down as far south as Watford John but <laughs> there you go they're all over the place uh, keep those texts coming in 53106 is the number uh, first story though I want to turn our attention to in a big way we're going to be chatting I should say about Liam Miller um, to Sean Kelly who was the GA president between 03 and 06 and I suppose the president most associated with uh, that relaxation of Rule 42 which allowed soccer and rugby to be played in Croke Park they still can be played in Croke Park but nowhere else at the moment so we're chatting to him about that and about Brexit and about I suppose his hopes and aspirations for the Oris I think he wants to run not sure he's that keen on Fine Gael's uh, blanket ban on anyone in the party running uh, so maybe not this time maybe the next time we'll hear what he has to say a little bit after 12 but plenty of stories in the papers as well about Facebook and big tech I suppose it was a big story for them and where I want to start is actually on page 23 of the Sunday Independent because there's two articles side by side uh, that I suppose come at this from different points of view Dr Mary Aiken writing Facebook should be told to leave Ireland if it won't control content and above that from Aida O'Hanlon, the internet is being made a scapegoat for all of society's ills Aidan 
Was there one you agreed with more than the other? I found myself agreeing with parts of both of them, to be honest. But to be, I think, and I surprisingly, I found myself agreeing with the first article uh, that we tend to blame the internet for all of our ills. The article itself actually touches on deeper issues, which is about what I would call platform capitalism. That these companies have a platform to access big markets, and that ultimately is the real problem. We've kind of forgotten that these big tech companies have one purpose, which is to make money. They are profit driven. They're thinking about their shareholder value on the market that's the real issue we should be talking about right that's what's driving their decisions I that's what's they were driving there to make me see what old <laughs> girlfriends were doing yeah share <laughs> photographs of your grandmother and stuff like this and that's what they do and you know that question has to be addressed before you get into the question of regulating privacy and so forth and so on now that dispatches program of course it was controversial it revealed a lot but it didn't reveal as much as what we didn't know already right that there's a lot of bad content out there it's difficult to regulate the man is cut from crooked timber they do nasty things and it catches itself online but you know what's the role of the state in regulating that very important the eu has to do it but i think the fundamental problem is that these platform companies have huge markets they're massively profitable and that's what really drives their behavior barry yeah i mean aiden is absolutely right i think as cynical as what he might have said might it might be it's absolutely true i mean the, the reality is these tech companies are in it to make money uh fancy offices and you know pu- you know foosball tables and all these kinds of things aside they're all about making money the other thing I think that's lurking all those things are there just so people won't leave work (laughs) that's what they realise they they think it's a great place to work they only realise they put that there so you never leave the office that's a fact it's all about the bottom line at the end of the day the other thing I think that's lurking in the background here is a transatlantic difference when it comes Mm. to speech Uh, in the United States the radical uh, radical First Amendment absolutely free speech absolutely everything is out there and should be allowed to be out there and nobody should ever regulate every anything uh, comes in sharp contrast to the European approach to these things, which is very, very different. Uh, and I think that cultural difference underpins lots of this. That argument, uh, Sheila, mm. though, about regulation and uh, Leo Varadkar's, you know, it's the World Wide Web, which by its very nature means it's all around the world. So it's yes. hard for us to regulate. And there is a point in relation to that, because how how do you? And I mean, Larry's after just hitting the nail exactly on the head in relation to the kind of the cultural difference between the uh, the US and here. And kind of we do talk about uh, regulation and like for, you know, we were talking about a digital safety commissioner in a long time in this country and it's still uh, to the jargon of many has not materialised. And while, you know, I, I kind of think the idea of a digital safety commissioner is commendable, um, I just wonder how it works in the wider scale of things, you know, that they, you can find Facebook for if they don't take down um, content and a, the proposal for a digital safety commissioner here would actually allow, would allow that commissioner to in order Facebook to take down content. But like, realistically, how is that going to work? Because are they just going to take down that content in Ireland, but then it would be available all over the world? Like, it just doesn't make sense unless you have literally a global solution for uh, social media. You don't have a solution at all. And that in itself is the problem. There's a defence of the regulatory regime in the business post from Helen Dixon speaking to Jack Horgan Jones today as well, Aidan. We are watching Facebook, watching you. And she rejects the idea that Ireland is light touch in terms of regulation or is seen as light touch by the tech giants. I mean, they are. See- I think it is fair to say that they are perceived as lighter touch, right, vis-a-vis a country like Germany, which is very hands-on. Mm. I mean, it's very difficult to access content online when you live in Germany. The internet is far more regulated. You can't just go online and download your YouTube 
YouTube videos as we would do in Ireland. So I think in that sense, culturally, Ireland is a bit similar to the USA, that we we see this as an open platform, do what you want. It's Ireland is belatedly coming to the realisation that we're in the European Union and the European Union thinks very differently about this. So I think it's fair to say that the regulator is much more proactive now than had been a few years ago. But there's a second dimension, and I think it's not just a cultural difference on over free speech. The European Union also thinks very differently about the economic model that these companies have. In the European Union, antitrust legislation is very strong. Big companies are perceived to be taking over markets. They're perceived to break them down. Where in the USA, that's a productivity of scale. They're encouraged. You you monopolize your market, well, then you must be the best. In the European Union, the idea is, well, you monopolize the market, you must be blocking out competition. So there's an economic difference and there's a cultural difference about how these companies are being treated. And I think that's going to play itself over out over the next few years. In the USA, they're platform capitalists. Go use your platform. In the European Union, is your platform capitalists and we need to break down your platform. Is there anything, Larry, to the accusation then that some would make against the government that uh, part of how they deal with all this is their consciousness of corporate tax receipts? Well, I mean, I, I think that the, the government is, is appropriate in terms of monitoring these things, in terms of how it, it approaches this, because the rea- economic reality is that uh, these companies are based here. They employ lots of people. Lots of people drive their lives and their livelihoods from their employment in this area. Uh, and it would be disastrous if I were to tell to take uh, a policy that I suppose was overly harsh uh, on these companies. That having been said, I think there's a happy medium between uh, total, you know, look the other direction and, uh, I suppose, strict regulation regulation. The, ba- the, the trick is getting the balance correct. Uh, and I think it's entirely appropriate that ION does keep an eye on the economy, does keep remain cognizant that uh, these are big employers and that these have been a boon to the Irish economy. There's no question about it. Isn't there another thing, though, already the kind of the, the shift has moved away from focusing on Facebook as a result of, you know, the documentary earlier this week. And now and here we are today and we are talking about the government, the government's responsibility and kind of the EU's responsibility and all of that, where in reality, I think the focus moved up a bit away from Facebook too fast, if you like, that we should be focusing back on what on the, what they do and the realities exposed in the Dispatches documentary, particularly that what you have is a small, inexperienced team in an outpost in Dublin, because bear in mind, they're not actually in the main Facebook offices, mm-hmm. um, funneling this content, if you like, through, uh, through what must be a very high pressurised environment where naturally enough mistakes are going to be made and clearly the regime isn't as, as strict as it should be, you know, and this is where this is why the focus should be back on Facebook mm. in particular in relation to how it operates. And in the long term, I think what we will be looking at is um, Aidan has touched on this, too, is we will be looking at will they be forced to kind of break yeah. up their company? You know, and I think five years, six years time, even Facebook will be a very different entity because will they be allowed to continue to operate the way they do, uh, building up this mega, mega, mega company or will they be made to kind of break it down? in order to sort of, I don't know, basically regulate themselves if they're not going to, if we can't regulate them, you know. Yeah, Aidan, to bring it back around as well, full circle, as you said, like that, they're, they're raison d'etre is to make money, you know what I mean? And uh, to do that, they need uh, people logging in, they need users, uh, members of Facebook, customers essentially is what they are, consumers. I'm not sure did anyone delete their Facebook account after that dispatches, certainly in 
no great number. So like that's for them. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, these companies, I think, have been able to develop themselves into such large uh, platform global companies precisely because they have public opinion and people on their side. And in that sense, there's, they're different companies. It's not like, you know, say like the, your, your electricity provider, you don't really, you know, you know, do you change electricity provider if the prices change? You kind of do. At least you have choice. You know, do you, you know, so they are a monopoly company, but they're a monopoly company that are different in that they actually are very close to their consumer base. And now, but what I do think is that consumer base has been central to their ability to get what they want, to advance their interests in terms of having a very pro-market deregulatory preference when it comes to all things effectively. But that might change now. Now that it's becoming a bit more politicized, it's in the arena, it's in the public arena, public opinion is perhaps thinking differently about that. But at the end of the day, how many people deleted their account? Probably very few. And that's exactly what Facebook will realize that the bar bottom line is, is not being hugely affected by this. But I think they are clever enough as a company to realize they were going to mm. they're going to have to change because that public opinion can change, I think, uh, quite quickly. Sh- Sheila's point is a really good one here. Uh, we've heard a lot from Facebook in the wake of all this, uh, the revelations. Uh, the reality is uh, the money has not been where their mouth is in terms of regulation, in terms of content moderation, uh, paying people pennies and overworking them to death uh, is not the solution. Here. And I think any regulation that follows needs to be focusing on putting the money where the mouth is, putting resources, making sure that Facebook and other tech giants put resources into content moderation. That has to be the case. A, a final word on Facebook, and it's not really covered in today's papers, but it, it just was a development on, on kind of Thursday evening into Friday, this news as well, that they're going to release um, the information, the ad spend from the, the, the uh, abortion referendum campaign. Uh, it'd be lots of people looking this, uh, looking at this, I suppose, particularly across the water as well in the UK about how this breaks down and about whether this is a precedent. Are Facebook now going to start releasing this information worldwide? Because this is, I suppose, the, the, you know, everything from Russian meddling to yeah. Brexit to the abortion referendum. How is Facebook being used by yeah. people? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's potentially fascinating, but we don't know what they're going to tell us yet. We don't know what they're going to tell us. I mean, when that data is out there and people begin to crunch the numbers and they begin to see strong correlations and patterns of behaviour whereby a successful outcome can be traced to X amount of expenditure, you can be damn sure that organisations like Steve Bannon's new movement will be onto that if they're not onto it already. In fact, they probably know. uh, So I think in that sense, yeah, it will have an impact because it will dictate how much people will spend to advance their interests and achieve the outcomes they want when it comes to policy campaigns. Yeah, we'll be speaking about uh, Steve Bannon's The Movement uh, a little bit later in the show. Uh, but as it stands as well, uh, in terms of using Facebook uh, to advertise in political campaigns, it's pretty much the Wild West still here in Ireland. So mm. for the upcoming presidential campaign, go ahead. Any <laughs> candidates out there? Plenty of candidates as well mentioned in the papers. We're going to get to some of them after this quick break. On the record. On News Talk. It's Kieran Cuddy with you here until one o'clock. Five three one zero six is the text number. People are still getting in touch about what about Facebook, about digital safety, about the GAA and Parky Cueve, but also about what I call the golf tournament that's happening in Carnoustie <laughs> at the moment. Kieran, will you stump this childish or maybe just ignorant behaviour? Oh, I'm I'm either childish or ignorant. <laughs> that's the choice they gave me in calling the greatest golf tournament in the world the British Open. You were at the same carry on and news talk the other day. You're really pissing me off. It was always the Open and always be the open cop yourself on and stop annoying all golfers says Billy McNamara from Clonmel 
oh, come on. This is like, you know, Billy is probably one of these people who calls uh, Wimbledon as well. The, you know, the what is it? The All England Championship. <laughs> no, it's not. It's Wimbledon. This is the British Open. Come on, Larry. You're and, with me, aren't and, you? And Billy's, the US Masters. Billy's wrong because the Masters is the greatest golf tournament in the world. <laughs> the, the US Masters. No, the Masters. Uh, <laughs> you're as bad as the rest of them. You're as bad as the rest of them. The British Open. Come on, it's not that annoying. Is it the British Open? I'm just childish or ignorant. One or the other. Uh, with me in studio, Aidan Regan, Sheila Riley, and Larry Donnelly. And we're picking our way through today's Sunday papers. And the story I want to turn our attention to now is a political one. And it is the poll, the opinion poll in the Sunday Times. Fine Gael opens up 13-point poll lead. Uh, they're turning up the pressure on Fianna Fáil to sign a two-year extension to the confidence of supply after establishing a 13-point lead over Michal Martin's party. Fine Gael has risen three points to 34%. Fianna Fáil has fallen three to 21. It is their lowest point in more than two years and the biggest gap between the parties since 2012. Uh, Sheila, there's a temptation that's polls out all the time. It's yeah. a temptation to read too much into them. But there, there is a trend that Fianna Fáil are lagging significantly behind Fine Gael as yeah, more and more polls come without out. Without a doubt, there? yeah. That, and that should be definitely a concern for them no matter what they say about the polls being a snapshot in time like this poll shows and you know if you look consistently Fine Gael is in and around the mid 30 mark 33 kind of percent or sorry early 30 33 33 33 percent throughout and that's been fairly consistent but Fianna Fáil has wavered considerably and now we see them going down to 21% to the point and actually below Sinn Féin at one point I think below Sinn Féin who've also dropped uh, slightly in this poll down two points. So it definitely is uh, a lot for them to be concerned about you know and they should and I, I think that um, in light of their decision in relation to the presidential campaign, I know we'll be discussing that in a few minutes, um, their decision not to contest it, I think that's going to actually um, that's going to cause them some pain in the long run, to be honest. And particularly with the fact that Sinn Féin now is going to have its agenda firmly at the heart of the discussion point for the next couple of months, if you like, no matter what candidate they put out there, because the reality is it's going to be Mary Lou that's contesting this presidential campaign. She'll be on the posters, I'd say. She will be on the posters and she will be front and centre. She definitely will be out in the constituencies, uh, meeting people and using this as a way kind of to uh, pave pave the way for, for Sinn Féin. And indeed, Mary Regan kind of has outlined that in her piece today in the Business Post, very good piece. So... Uh, so this, so against that backdrop, Fianna Fáil are in difficulty because they have no place, kind of, to to push themselves into the into relevance, if you like, in what's going to be the key political discussion in the next couple of months, and also in, and Brexit is as well, you know. And again, they're kind of lost in relation to that. Now they have some very good spokespeople out, and there's no doubt about that. But as things heat up, there is no doubt that the government's agenda is going to be the agenda in relation to Brexit. It's not necessarily going to be kind of any political infighting, if you like, on the domestic scene here, because everybody is going to be focused on the political infighting that's going on across the water, which seems to be pretty much endless. So they're in an extraordinary position, actually. It's very, uh, I'd say, and there's a lot of itchy Fianna Fallers there. And any proposal that they uh, hold this out to 2020, I'd say, is uh, fanciful, to say the least. Yeah, Larry, we'll, we'll come back to some of those issues, yeah, around the, the presidential election and the open playing field, I suppose, that Sinn Féin might be afforded to a degree, certainly when compared to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in a couple of minutes. But on this, is this a case, is it too simplistic to say this is just a case of the confidence is why coming back to kind of bite Fianna Fáil that essentially they can't, haven't been able to operate as a legitimate opposition party. 
Yeah, I, I think there may be something to that, but I think there's also something to uh, the reality that, and again, we're, we're political insiders, I suppose, by definition, we follow these things very closely. Uh, I think more casual observers, there's a political reality out there that we kind of uh, scoff at or that partisans dispute, and that is that people generally like Leo Varadkar. They like Leo Varadkar, they like Simon Harris. I think that the Eighth Amendment referendum campaign uh, did both individuals and Fina Gale uh, a lot of good because they there, it seemed to be in keeping with the public mood. Uh, and I think this factor influences the opinion polls to a very dramatic extent. Uh, I think Fina Fall doesn't have that same kind of person uh, or that person uh, you know at the, at the top who is uh, I suppose am animating voters as capable uh, and and uh, able as, as as Michal Martin is uh, he doesn't have that X factor that I think uh, people again people are going to scoff when I say that but Leo Varadka definitely has something and is connecting with people and I think that's what's driving these poll numbers. Leo Varadkar is the Bernie Sanders or the Jeremy Corbyn of Ireland I wouldn't have thought it but in terms of Larry's point that, like, you know, someone who is maybe capturing a sense of momentum and change among young people, Aidan, there there's a point to that, isn't there? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think if you, I, I, perhaps I think what he is very good at and he has a team of people who know how to use the media very well. Mm -hmm. So political communications are clearly uh, far better under Leo Varadkar than they have been under previous prime ministers and other party leaders. I mean, by definition, he has a platform by virtue of, it, of his of his office. But I mean, I don't know. I think this is a poll. It's a snapshot in time. You know, public opinion changes. Attitudes vary. I mean, it wouldn't take much of a controversy, I think, to slightly knock Leo Varadkar off his pedestal. So I don't. I just. I would be just. I wouldn't be overly confident that this is something that's stable through time. He is popular, and I think the referendum was very important for his his image, effectively, because he's been able to kind of shift positions. At one stage, he was conservative. Uh, you know, and now he's liberal all of a sudden. You know, but we have we have a. a we have a perpetual housing crisis. Yeah. We have a perpetual health crisis. Mm. We have a cervical sc cancer scandal, which I, I know it, it's hard to pin that on, on any one party or anything. But in another situation, you could see how there'd be political fallout. And yet the numbers yeah. are fairly consistently yeah. high in all those they are. I mean, Fine Gael, if they played their cards right, quite frankly, could govern for a decade. But we live in a country that has coalition government. So the question is, who would they govern in coalition with? Right. And, and that's where like Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin together could probably beat Fine Gael, right? Fine Gael need now at this stage the Social Democrats or the Labour Party or independents to give them a majority in any parliament. So the question is, who would Fine Gael govern with? And therefore, you know, that's where the dynamic will begin to play itself out. If Fine Gael take a slight turn left and bring themselves a bit more centre left and the kind of Garrett Fitzgeralds, you know, Simon Harris, arguably Simon Coveney kind of frame of thought, then they could probably mobilise a bit more support and bring in, I think, parts of the Social Democrats, the Labour and so forth. If they go a bit further to the right, you know, which I think would be Leo Vradkar's natural instinct, well then they're a bit left out in the open because there's not a huge space there for them. So I think that's where the dynamic will come out when it comes to forming a parliamentary majority, which is what they ultimately need to do. At the moment, as you say, it's kind of like Fine Gael propped up by Fianna Fáil. As we pointed mm -hmm. out, Fianna Fáil are clearly the biggest losers from that. Larry, you, you were shaking your head and then nodding your head at various times there. <laughs> well, I mean, I think first, you know, to dismiss this poll as kind of a, a snapshot in time, I think is wide of the mark. I mean, the reality is that the polling has been pretty consistent. Uh, Fine Gael is popular. Uh, Leo Varadka is popular. Uh, and in terms of the problems that you, you, you mentioned, and those problems are very severe, the housing shortage is a real problem. There's always uh, an issue in health, etc. But Fianna Fáil cannot benefit from these because it is seen as so intriguing. 
intrinsically mm-hmm. tied uh, to Fine Gael because of the government arrangement. Then on the flip side, you have a left which is still diffuse. Uh, you know, we have Sinn Féin, but we have independents, we have PBP, we have uh, the Labour Party. Uh, so the left is a little bit all over the place. And in turn, uh, at the same time, we have an economy that's doing pretty well. And we have a lot of people who are doing well. Those are the people who are tending to turn to Fine Gael. Uh, and as long as the economy goes as it is, uh, I, I don't see any downside for Leo Varadkar and for Fine Gael. I think that the, the good times will keep coming for them uh, in an election. Uh, I think they will fare very well. Yes, Sheila, we, yeah. we get, people like us probably talk about it all day long, but does it come down to that old, uh, like what? I can't remember what election was it? Nice. It's the economy stupid. What year was that? Yeah. 92. 92. Yeah, and it probably does. I mean, that's just the, the long and short of it, you know. Um, and and that in itself is an issue because once you come out of Dublin, you know, as we know, the the economy isn't increasing at the same rate as it is in Dublin. Like Dublin's a totally different situation. So uh, that's kind of, there's a bit of a question for them to be asked in relation to that. But I think what Farragher has done and why his poll rating uh, uh, has kind of been consistently good himself and he's still very popular, as Larry points out, is he has... Separate buffered himself from all those issues that have been raised all the time. Like when we think of housing, when we talk of housing here, we don't think of Radcliffe. You know, we think of Owen Murphy, and we think of you know. We, He's going to kick the th- teeth out of the problem, yeah, according yeah, to his parent. article in the Sunday Business Post today. Yes. Um, anyway, um, we think of health. <laughs> the less said, the better. Uh, I'm still getting over the the pictures of him running through the surf down in uh, Carrier on the Yeah, week. he won a lot of topless yeah. awards. I think in people's <laughs> uh, end already, of year yeah. political awards. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it stands up there for me with Bertie and the yellow trousers. I don't know which site still has left me so uh, e- equally traumatised, <laughs> I think. But anyway, um, we think of Harris when we think of the health crisis, you know, and even with cervical uh, check issue, uh, uh, we we don't th- we don't think of Radcliffe, you know, he's not and he hasn't been to the fore in any of those, to be honest, all the time. He's saying the right things, but standing back and letting somebody else take the flack. Uh, how long he'll get away with that, I would be interested in. The, the other, I suppose, big political story in the papers as well is the presidential election. I, I th- it's fair to say we are going to have an election, I think, aren't we now? Is that, mm-hmm. I think everyone has agreed someone was going to get the nomination somewhere yeah. or the other. And Sinn Féin looked like certainly they're going to run someone. To go back then to start off on this, on the point that Sheila was making previously, Larry, uh, that Sinn Féin are going to run a candidate. You've got various other people and we'll get through some of them in a minute. But in terms of the big political parties and how they're looking at it, is, is it Fianna Fáil who might most regret not running someone? Fine Gael, I don't think running in a presidential election has ever helped them anyway. <laughs> so, uh, Fianna Fáil though, are they missing a beat? No, I don't think so. Uh, because I think that the result of this presidential election is going to be an overwhelming re-election for Michael D. Higgins. Uh, I don't think that there's anything really to gain for Fianna Gael uh, or for Fianna Fáil in, in running a candidate. Uh, as you say, I mean, uh, Fianna Gael is popular as it is. And again, one of the major parties, look what happened to Gay Mitchell last time and he barely made a, a dent. Uh, so I don't think there's anything there. What I think is going to be interesting, there's two ways of looking at uh, this campaign for Sinn Féin. One way is that this is going to be another opportunity for Sinn Féin's opponents to dredge up the past and to remind the electorate uh, of everything that Sinn Féin uh, is, all the clo- all the skeletons that are in that closet. The other way you could look at this from, for Sinn Féin is if they nominate, as I suspect, uh, Leonie Rieda, it is going to be the idea of distancing itself from the past and divorcing itself from the past and presenting a new face, a new fresh face, indeed a female face, uh, that 
will in their in their mind uh, i don't think i think they're under no illusion i don't think they think they can win the thing but it's an opportunity for them to burnish and to brandish a new image a new Sinn Féin uh, and I think that's why Mary Lou is go- obviously going to be prominent in all of this and seeing if they can crack that ceiling that's there uh, among I suppose middle class voters and others who would have always been repelled by the past so in a sense the past will be part of this but I think Sinn Féin is going to be really focusing on divorcing itself from the past. Uh, would you agree with that Aidan I suppose that's what Mary Regan as well is writing about in the Business Post today page 15 for Sinn Féin the race for the Auras is as important as the result yeah it's kind of Sisyphean it's like pushing the boulder up the hill that's what matters more like they know that they're not going to win I think Michael D Higgins will uh, get an overwhelming majority and that is a good enough reason in itself for why Fianna Fáil would not run a candidate mm-hmm. because they know they will lose so Fianna Fáil running a candidate giving the Fianna Fáil history the party that they are they will want to win so they don't want to lose for Sinn Féin this is not about winning I don't think it's about getting their image it's about getting their story out there so I think it will be interesting because effectively you do have two left wing candidates running then for the presidency and the question is, what kind of debates will that kind of kick up? I imagine Sinn Féin will focus on things like housing. I imagine things, um, Michael D. Higgins will focus on things like the future of work and so forth, precarious living and economic mm. insecurity. Mm. So from a kind of consumer perspective, it will be interesting to see those important debates being played out uh, in, in, in the national media. Well, unfortunately, the presidential elections are never that highbrow because the reality mm. is they come down to being a personality dogfight. And, uh, oh, they're character assassinations. They are, yeah, yeah. They're hugely difficult campaigns. They're hugely difficult campaigns to contest, to fight in, because there's a lot of curveballs can come along the way and could potentially knock a candidate. And this is where I see the difficulty for Michael D. Higgins because he's hugely popular at the minute. Uh, if you subscribe to everything you read, he's a shoe in But I don't think he's a shoe in I think that somebody could come out of the Woodwork that could do serious damage to him. And I think all of the pressure is on him because he is the lead candidate as he steps out into the field. And uh, one mistake on his behalf, even a small innocuous one, could co- could he could have to pay very heavy consequences for that. And it's going to be very hard for him to contest. We have never seen a presidential election ca- uh, contested by somebody who is a sitting president. And it's really going to be hard for him to contest that as a sitting president to try and divorce the role of the presidency while being out there um, campaigning. Uh, no, I see a lot of obstacles for him now between now and then. Uh, Larry, it was a feature of the last election that actually Michael D in, in part won it because he stood to the side amongst all, when all his character assassinations uh, when, the, when they were all standing. happening. There was a little bit of that, wasn't there? You know, David Norris got treated dreadfully in, in the last mm-hmm. election. And then, you know, Sean Gallagher was odds on favourite right up until the last few days until uh, the tweet and everything else. Uh, Martin McGuinness uh, as well. Really, at that time, it was a similar tactic to Sinn Féin. You know, this was about building profile. It was about running as opposed to winning, even though like he did he did well. He polled higher than Sinn Féin had done up until then, even in general elections, in terms of overall uh, favourability, although they've, they've surpassed that since. Uh, can he stand aside this time or is he more likely to be the target of attacks? He has a big target on his back. Well, it's an interesting question because um, to, to what Sheila was saying, I'm just not sure on what grounds do you attack Michael D. Higgins? Where do you go after him? And if we look back at the, the 2011 election uh, and if we look back at Irish history, the reality is uh, the presidency, although it's often a maligned office, it is an extraordinary office in many ways. And there's a lot of soft power that goes with it in the person that represents Ireland on the world stage. And as such, I think to the Irish people's great credit, they've always elected people of a certain timber, of a certain quality uh, to the office of the presidency. And if we go back to 2011, uh, the people's flirtation with Gallagher was very much that, a flirtation. Uh, and I think that 
even people who were leaning towards Gallagher, some of their suspicions uh, about him, I think, uh, came to the fore when he screwed up on Frontline. Uh, a lot of people had concerns about capacity there. That support was a mile wide uh, and an inch deep. And the logical recipient then uh, of those people's suspicions, in one sense, uh, was Michael D. Higgins. And given how he has performed while in office, uh, I just don't see a whole lot of room out there for mounting a cogent attack on him that would persuade enough of the Irish people that somebody else is better suited to be in the Irish. Yeah, Michael D., uh, uh, while he's been president, hasn't been shy about expressing his opinion on things. And look, he, he, his social democratic values come across and he's criticised Europe for the erosion maybe of those values in Europe. And I know personally from speaking to people and Larry I think you call us political insiders here and these would be political insiders who maybe were annoyed by that in Bristol and that's not his job and he's overstepped the mark uh, and and look maybe they have a point in the strictest sense but I don't that's not hardly an argument that's really going to kind of get people out of the opinion polls is it it's a bit abstract no, I mean there's a couple of people in the media who have a kind of uh, don't particularly like uh, President Higgins because of his basically classic social democratic values and but I don't think those voices represent public opinion um, I think a lot of people look at Michael D Higgins and see an intellectual they see an elderly man who you know has a lot of respect for the office who is an international uh, speaker engaging in the, the big the battle of ideas which doesn't take place generally in the parliament and so forth so that the office of the president allows that space and yet it's quite refreshing I would say this as an academic to see an intellectual talking about those debates on the international arena and I find it I think a lot of people say yeah why not have our office or have our president effectively going around the world talking about the, the ideas talking about economic insecurity talking about all these things particularly at the particular moment we're in it with Trump Brexit etc it's quite refreshing to have somebody with a progressive view of the world there, there, there's various names as well I have been mentioned in the race uh, Park Cage or David Hall today as well uh, Gerard Crockwell, obviously, we have um, Gavin Duffy has been mentioned. Joan Freeman, of course. Noel Whelan. Uh, Noel Whelan as well. Someone suggested mm. Noel Whelan could become a very serious candidate to me the other day if he if he were to run. Uh, uh, Kevin Sharkey as well. Actually, there's an article with Kevin Sharkey in the paper today. Um, I, I don't have it right here in front of me. Um, Sharkey claims open door EU policy on immigration will overwhelm us, says Hugh O'Connell. It's in the Business Post on page two. Uh, just before the outbreak, I just want to ask you very briefly about this. Look, in it he talks about this uh, conscious attempt to repopulate Europe with immigrants and that it's the banks are behind it and they're controlling the European governments uh, because they want more customers. So let's just set aside that conspiracy theory for a moment. But he does as well in it make the point uh, that we're not allowed to talk about immigration in a certain context in public discourse and actually I think he's right in this and what, what what popped into my head when I read that line was do you remember uh, Gillian Duffy Gillian Duffy was the woman in Rochdale who had a go at Gordon Brown about all various mm. things she was a Labour voter all her life various things and then at the end she said oh immigration well I can't even say what I want about them or I'll be you know I'll be crucified and then Gordon Brown walked off with his microphone on and called her a racist or a bigot a, a or bigot. something a bigot yeah. and he got absolute he mm. got crucified for she it had to go back to her and apologise go back to her house and everything do you remember yeah and, and, and people at the time kind of rightly said look she, she was part of this court people who saw their neighbourhoods change and they were just a bit unsettled about it and being dismissive of them wasn't right you saw that in Brexit come through. Yeah. People were dismissive of that 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 cohort of opinion. Probably in, to an extent, you see that in in the states as well uh, behind Trump. 
we're guilty of it here as well. Like Kevin, set aside Kevin Sharkey's conspiracy theorists about bankers controlling immigration policy in Europe. He's right that we're not allowed talk about it in certain terms, isn't he, Larry? Oh, he's he, in that sense. And, and let me get it out there first. Uh, a lot of what Kevin Shockey says is absolute rubbish. Uh, but uh, he's right in that sense. And I think it's really important that we have these frank, open discussions, because when we don't have frank, open discussions and we don't allow people the space to make arguments, then it leads to movements that are under mm. the surface and it leads to the alienation of lots of people. And we saw that in Brexit. We saw that with Trump. Uh, and I think we would be making a profound mistake stake if we didn't allow space for those discussions uh, here in Ireland. And I think one of the places where you see it get shot down immediately is Twitter. Uh, if you say anything that's not in keeping with uh, orthodox left-wing views, open Diver- borders, etc. Diversity of everything except opinion. Exactly. You see people get shut down. You see them get called all sorts of awful names. Uh, and when it comes to immigration, I think that you know there is, uh, those of us who are favorably disposed towards immigration think it enriches countries, etc. But at the same time, the reality is no country can take everybody. We have to have sane, rational discussions uh, about what a cogent, clear, coherent, yet benign immigration policy is. And those who say that we can't take everybody shouldn't be shouted down out of the space right away. Aiden? I think it's remarkable in Ireland there's two dimensions to this. The first dimension is that immigration is not a politicized issue here like it is in the UK and most kind of northwestern, eastern European countries yeah. at this point in time. I think the reason for that is that we have not been exposed mm. to the insecurities that have come with mass immigration post kind of refugee crises, the collapse of the Middle East, what's happening in North Africa. We have not been exposed that I am pretty sure if Ireland was Italy or Ireland was any Mm. other country that had to deal with this in the same way continental European countries are we would be talking about immigration and it would be a politicised issue so I don't think public opinion in Ireland is any way different so when Kevin Sharkey says we should be talking about it Yes, we should, if it becomes a salient, politicised issue. But at this point in time, all of the polls show, look at the Eurobarometer data, immigration in Ireland and Spain is just not cited as a concern, right? It's in there as a small percentage, but people are focused on much bigger issues, housing, etc., being the number one uh, uh, item that emerges in that data. So in that sense, it doesn't surprise me we don't talk about it. We're not exposed to it and it's not politicised. Well, look, immigration is one of those issues that kind of has coalesced around populist politics. And there is some really interesting stuff about populism and the rise of populist parties uh, in the papers as well. And we're going to get to them after this quick break. On the record. On News Talk. Yes, you are listening to On the Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Five three one zero six is the text number. People are still giving out to me about the fact that I say the British Open instead of the Open Championship. <laughs> Keep the criticism coming. Five three one zero six. You can even tweet it to me directly. Sure, why not? At Kieran Cuddy. Uh, with me in studio, Aidan Regan, Sheila Riley, and Larry Donnelly. Uh, before the break, we kind of touched on um, on immigration and immigration maybe as, a, as <coughs> something we should be talking about, but also as a kind of a lightning rod issue when it comes to populism. And there's an interesting uh, poll from the UK today and it's carried on page two of the Sunday Times British turn to the far right Boris and to remain poll reveals backlash in UK against PM's Brexit deal but interesting to say 24% of British people surveyed are prepared to support an explicitly far right anti-immigrant anti-Islam party and Aidan what we're seeing there is what we've seen really in lots of other places around Europe isn't it? Yeah I mean what's happening across Europe is there's an opening up of what we call in political science a tripolar space you've got the centre left the centre right and the far right and the far right now effectively are a pole in themselves we don't have that in Ireland we could talk all day about why that is I think the fact that we have Sinn Féin blocks mitigates the emergence of that amongst core parts of the electorate which I think is a a good thing so the fact that 24% of 
all our disenfranchised young people go to Bondi Beach. <laughs> exactly. And increasingly, it's a big part of it. It's, but a, it's a release valve. Actually, if you look at the data as well, Sinn Fein are the most popular party amongst the under 35. So back to your previous point about Leo and all that, we could talk about the specifics yeah. of the data. So the trend for the future is that people, younger people in particular, will look to Sinn Fein. So I think that is more closer to what's happening in Sanders and Corbyn and so forth. But in terms of the 24% to turn to the far right, it doesn't surprise me. The Tory party, the Conservative party, have become a hard right nationalist nativist party. And within that, you have a core group of pretty far right individuals who are leading from the top through their access to political levers of power, advancing a particular policy agenda, which is dragging Britain in that particular direction. However, at the same time, look at the polls. Labour now are the most popular party by, I think, one percentage point. Mm. So I think the headline is slightly misleading that Brightons are turning to the far right. The Brightons have been drifting towards the far right for quite some time. That data, as you said, is supported right around Europe, except here, Portugal and Spain, I think, are the, you know, the Iberian Peninsula. I knew we were kind of Mediterranean at heart, <laughs> Iberian at heart. Uh, certainly the weather Italy, the Italy without weeks. the sun, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, Larry, that there is a, an interesting subtext all this as well. There's a story that was carried in The Guardian yesterday, certainly where I was reading it, but I know it's, it's elsewhere as well. And it's Steve Bannon coming here as well to, to capitalise on this sentiment that essentially he sees Europe, the future of Europe, as being this 24%. This figure will grow and grow and grow right around Europe. Forget your big social democratic federal states of Europe. The future of Europe is nation states. Yeah, I mean, look, that's it's it's a global movement, and in a way, it's it's redefining political ideology in a sense. Because when when Aiden talks about the the center right, the center left, and the far right, uh, if we're using conventional definitions at any rate, this cohort in society, I'm not sure we define them as the hard right, because uh, in many instances they would be supportive of government programs, they would be supportive of, uh, I suppose, government intervention in different things. They wouldn't be purist. Mm-hmm laissez-faire right-wing people. What they are is what I would call turn-back-the-clock conservatives. Uh, They want society to look very much as it did 50 years ago uh, in terms of the simplicity of uh, a home, a job, people around them who look like themselves. That's very much at the heart of what Steve Bannon has been preaching for a while. And politically, it's a very good formula for success. There's a wide appeal for that kind of message. Now, the, the real challenge then for the parties of the establishment and for traditional politics is to c- reconnect with those people who've become so alienated. That's the trick, and that's the problem. And again, as long as you have those fears, and those sentiments and people who are good at manipu- manipulating them, like Steve Bannon, uh, that's the growth industry in politics in the world right now. Sheila, where do you fall on, on the spectrum of concern? Because sometimes I kind of stand back and I think, you know what, like you're, you're, we're better off in terms of health and wealth and everything than we probably at any other point in human history. And then I pick up a book I was reading uh, recently, Fascism, A Warning from Madeleine Albright. I was actually listening to it, narrated by her uh, as I was in my car. Uh, and, and you read stories like this and you hear people genuinely talking about the entire European project being mm. put into peril, that you know this is the future, this kind of nationalist and nativism yeah, I don't think there's any harm in uh, discussing, you know, where the European project is and, and looking at where it should be and where do we as nations want it to go. You know, I don't think there's any problem in taking ownership of that. But I do think uh, we have to see the rise of the far right, see the way uh, this kind of that populist movement that, that Bannon sees that he can tap into. He, he sees what is there because he's seen that over in the States and that enabled him to get Donald Trump elected in that vacuum, if you like. And, and you know, that group where that 
Larry was talking about earlier on that's kind of been isolated and where their their opinions and concerns have been dismissed. And if you don't bring them kind of into the fold, this is what happens. They are left at the margins and being at the margins then you see groups like that going out to exploit them and to exploit that space. And, and Bannon sees that as a rich stream to be tapped. Uh, and that's why he's here. That's why he's standing behind Marine Le Pen on the platform and, and Farage and et al. He sees them as being able to tap into what's out there. And I do think it is concerning. I think that we should not just stand in the background and allow it to happen in front of our eyes. Think that what happened in the States could never happen here. Uh, and yet you're watching like we're watching the States from a di- from afar in lots of ways because we see what's happening as nearly, you know, so, you know, as I don't know, nearly a, a show, like a spectacle at this stage, you I, know, as which we are removed from. But in reality, the impact of that it, it will impact I, our lives. I, I think she is absolutely right to be concerned. And I hear a lot of people, particularly on the left, who are concerned about all this. The question then becomes, what do you do with that concern? Yeah, how and concern, what I can, what and what I can, what I can tell you for sure, as much as I might agree with some of it, is high horse moralizing mm. is not going them to move, It's not going to move those people. What is going to move those people is conversation and dialogue, and that's what is incumbent upon the parties of the establishment to do. I mean, if you look at, so where does the far right get its support, whether it's the USA or whether it's continental Europe, Austria, Germany, France, Italy, so forth, basically it's from two sources, what would have been previously called the kind of white working class, plus the kind of petty bourgeoisie, as you would say in continental Europe, small, medium-sized business owners. Most of the people are focused on the domestic market and have this sense of belonging. They want the community effectively. All the data shows that if the left was to have an answer to stop the rise of the far right, it's to put the focus on other salient issues except for immigration and that's generally economic issues Mm. economic security it's not that people do not have concerns with immigration rather we all have latent concerns the question is what weight do you attach to what issue and what Steve Bannon is doing is putting all the Mm. weight on Mm. the issue of immigration and insecurity he's making that issue and that's what the far right are doing they're focusing on on identity and the more that the left focus on identity as well the heavier that weight becomes in public discourse and the better it is for the far right so if the left was to have an answer to that stop talking about identity and start talking about real bread and butter issues yeah, well, Damien and Santry says the left <laughs> and the right in the 80s were very easy for me to tell apart now I find it hard the further left you go the more right you become and vice versa <laughs> uh, on that note uh, Aidan Regan professor at the UCD School of Politics and International Relations director of the Dublin European Institute Sheila Riley head of digital with Iconic News former editor as well of the Longford Leader and Larry Donnelly law lecturer in NUIG thanks all very much for coming in to me this Sunday stay with us back after this quick break On the record On the record on News Talk.